everyone? Are you all well? Did anybody attack a seagull in the night? I had a text yesterday saying, love the seagulls. They are God's creatures too, so don't touch the seagulls. Or I will give this person who texted me your name and you'll be in deep, deep trouble. I've really enjoyed being with you in the last couple of days. I've sensed God's presence with us. Thank you for being so willing to participate and to listen and then to engage in conversation. 322 texts yesterday. Bless you. Thank you for that. And they are not texts that are flippant, apart from the one that told me I looked like Hagrid (laughs) without a beard. Or the one that asked me, do I like cardigans? I don't know what that's got to do with Isaiah. Maybe Isaiah wore a cardigan, I have no idea. But thank you. Many of your texts are so personal that it's just not appropriate to share them. And I want to give you the pastoral respect that you are due. But just be aware that if you have texted me something about your own situation, People text me this morning about encountering a real anger from folk about even where they've parked their car. Others have texted saying feeling very lonely or they're struggling or they were about to give up. Just thank you for being so honest. Thank you for being so vulnerable. Thank you for being so willing to participate in this. And be assured that I am praying for you and trust that God will really minister to you. I want you to do something. There have been three preachers every morning. And in every big top, there have been three preachers. The uh, interpreters are fantastic, aren't they? I think sometimes we forget just how important their ministry is and what they do and how they communicate God's word. So thank you so much for doing that. How many of you have ever forgotten something? Um, A story, I don't mean just something, but something about your past. Somebody says something to you in your family or says, remember the time we went on holiday and we did this or that or something else? And you think, oh, I'd forgotten all about that. Look around, we've all forgotten something. I was talking to somebody, a guest yesterday, and they, they were, I don't know how we ended up talking about it, but we ended up talking about a place called Tramore, which is on the south coast of the Republic of Ireland. It's like the Irish equivalent of Blackpool without a tower. And for seven years, I was saying to this person yesterday, for seven years, um, my family went on holiday to Tramore. Now, If you can imagine a map of Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland together, then right up here is where I lived. And Tremor was right down here on the bottom of the Southern coast. And we never had very much money as a family. So this was a massive thing for us. This was a huge holiday. And all seven of us, typical Irish family, would squeeze into a Vauxhall Viva with a black vinyl roof. Oh, and drive all the way down. 
Now, that sounds funny enough. We'd spend two weeks in Tremor. We had a fantastic time. But every year, my mum loves her home comforts. And I'd honestly forgotten about this story until yesterday. But every year, she would have tied to the top of our Vauxhall Viva with spider cords her double bed mattress. <laughs> Honestly, we were like the clampets driving down through Ireland. <laughs> and we'd get to Tremor, and she'd put the double bed mattress in her bedroom in the tent, and we'd have our holidays every year. And it took nine hours to drive from Rathcool, which is where I was from, to Tremor, which is where we went on holiday. But one particular year, right in the middle of the Troubles, we, were, you always, we always had to go through a little town called Dundalk. Anybody ever heard of Dundalk? Yes. Well, Dundalk had a reputation for being a town where terrorists in Northern Ireland would run to, to escape justice. And one year, driving through Dundalk with an Irish registration plate, our little green homemade uh, trailer on the back, made from an old garden shed that my dad had knocked down and didn't want to waste the wood, <laughs> and a double bed mattress on the top of the car. <laughs> As we were driving through Dundalk town centre, the wheel fell off the trailer. And the trailer axle was sparking along the ground. Flames everywhere. And the wheel bounced down the road and went through the window of the police station. <laughs> and I had forgotten that story. What kind of memory do I have? Turn to the person beside you and tell them in 30 seconds, one story that you'd forgotten that you've remembered today. Oh. This morning we're going to think about the story of Israel and what they forgot. We're going to call to mind what they forgot. The passage that we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 42, verses, from verse 18 through to the end of chapter 43. And we're going to remember this amazing story. The context for the whole day is worth thinking about within the context of what we've done thus far. 
on day one of our Bible readings, day two of spring harvest, which was a Wednesday, not that we're getting confused about days or anything, we looked at Isaiah 52 into 53. The fact that Israel was called to be a servant and so are we. On day two of our Bible readings, day three of spring harvest, which was a Thursday, which was yesterday, was it? We looked at the fact that God is our comfort and our trust that he can be relied upon because he is our comforter, our carer, our counselor, all of those things. We remembered that he is above everything. There's nothing too hard for him and he is there to help and sustain us. Today, the context for the whole of the site, every single guest, if you go to a seminar or to a program or to something, you will be exploring the Exodus story and be reminded of this amazing story of God delivering his people, of God reminding them that he is the one that led them through the desert, called them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land and gave them all that he promised that he would give them. And it's worth reminding ourselves of that as we look at this passage in Isaiah. And to do so, we go back to the high council Remember yesterday I talked about the high council? The fact that there was a courtroom in which Israel was accusing God of something and he responded graciously and compassionately and gently and lovingly. Well, we go back to another high council today. The way this is written indicates that very clearly. But I want you to take a look at a clip first. Let me set the scene. It's Gandalf. Somebody texted me yesterday and said, what's your favorite book? (laughs) And I texted back and said, the Bible. (laughs) No, I didn't actually. It was a slightly fuller answer than that. I said a couple of books in the Bible, not that I don't like at all, and a couple of novels and a couple of theologians. And the text took about 25 minutes to write. No, I'm kidding. I want you to look at this clip. In it, Gandalf is in Rohan. He's talking to Theoden. And he's in a, in a stable talking to Aragon. Theoden the king has to decide whether he's going to rise and fight Sauron, who's the baddie. And he's decided that he will. And this is a conversation that takes place between Aragon or Strider or the ranger, who's actually the king. Why are you not excited about that? (laughs) Why are you not going, ooh? (laughs) Yes, well, I do worry about you, you know. He's having a conversation with him about a battle that lies ahead. Take a look at this. a little later on, but what Gandalf says to Aragorn is, look to my coming on the third day, look to the east, and then he rides off, and Aragorn is left to look after the people of Rohan, to work out how to get to help them and to serve them. We'll come back to that later. But in this second high council, God gets tough. In the first one, he's listened gently and graciously and lovingly to the complaint of Israel. And he answers them by reminding them of who he is. 
In this second council, his love gets stronger. If Isaiah 40 sets out God's credentials as the creator of the heaven and the earth, then this dispute is evidence that Israel are still feeling hard done by. They've heard God saying, I'm your comforter, I'm your counselor, I'm your carer, I'm your strength, and they still feel hard done by. They're still angry. They're still cross. They're still wanting to work out why God is allowing them to go through this. Somebody texted me yesterday and said, you haven't answered the question. Why did God let them go into exile? He could have stopped it. I'm going to try to answer that question today. It was a good question. It was a right question. Because in the midst of all of the promises of comfort, God still let it happen. And some of you have spoken to me and said, this teaching is transforming, it's renewing, it's strengthening, but you're still in the midst of pain. You're still living with it. It's not going away. Why does God allow that to happen for Israel? And then we'll explore gently because it's such a holy and delicate subject why that is so important for us. But God's responses in this passage are less, they're as loving, they're as strong, they're as gracious, they're as caring, but they are strong. There is a reprimand that takes place in this passage. And there is a reminder. The reprimand says to Israel that God has allowed this to happen, but it says more than that. But it also reminds them that what they experienced in exile was not the result of a powerless God. Their exile was not because God could not help them. Their exile was not because God um, was unable to deliver them. Their exile was not an accident. And they are reprimanded in this passage. They're challenged to remember that God is still in control. This is a hard thing to hear for Israel. I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about Israel. God says to them very clearly, your exile is your fault. He says, you were the ones that were wayward. You were the ones that walked away from me. You were the ones that did not obey me. Your exile is a result of that. Now that is not a politically correct message in a world like today where so often we can say, well, nothing is ever my fault. Let me be really clear here. I am not suggesting that the struggles that many of us are facing are our fault. I am not saying that. I am not saying that everything we go through, we go through because of our choices. Did a child on the beach on Boxing Day when the tsunami hit choose to send the tsunami? Did a Jew choose to have Hitler as their ruler? Did the Cambodians choose to have a tyrant in Pol Pot? Did the people that lived in Lockerbie choose to let that plane explode and fall upon them? None of those things were their choices. So this is not me suggesting that the situations you find yourself in are always your fault. 
but I'm going to say something that I'm nervous about saying, but I have to say to be true to the text. Far too often when we come to the Bible, we shape it. We do not let it shape us. One of the reasons that I've asked you to stand every morning for the Bible reading is because I think this word is important. We need to respect what God says through it. So with great trepidation and great fear, I'm going to say something to you which will upset you. But I don't mean to upset you. Some of the struggles that we face are our fault. Not all of them, but some of the situations we find ourselves in, we get ourselves into. And God has every right to remind us of that. He is the creator, we are the created. And in Israel, in this passage, that's what he does. He reminds them that the exile was their fault. They disobeyed him. He uses words that are powerful and strong and challenging. We're looking at the moment at Isaiah 42, 18 through 25. And he says things to them like, um, you are deaf, you are blind. Listen to the words, they're so challenging for us. Imagine Israel hearing these. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me? Blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open but you hear nothing. That's hard enough but listen to this. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become a plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this? or pay close attention to the time to come. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Have I missed a verse? Now, you should have realized that. How many of you have actually got Bibles open in front of you? You should have shouted, you've gone from verse 23 to verse 7. <laughs> Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Here's the key verse. Who handed Jacob over to become loot? And Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord? Against whom we have sinned. For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. 
We have created an image of God, which is a God who would never in a million years cause something that was difficult or painful or hard for his people to go through. But in this passage, whether we like it or not, God says, I handed you over to be plunder. I handed you over to be loot. Do you remember I said to you yesterday that sometimes God asks, allows us to ask any question we like, but he expects us to listen to the answer? They're saying, why are we in this situation? Why have, you, why have the Babylonians done this? Why are we in exile? Why are we suffering? And God says to them, listen to this, because I gave you to them. I handed you over. In other words, if you want to blame somebody, blame me. Because you turned away from me, and this is a consequence of you turning away from me. How difficult is that? Listen to some of the key words in Isaiah 42. Hear you deaf, look you blind. You have seen many things, but not paid attention. Your eyes are open, but you hear nothing. You are plundered, looted, trapped in pits, hidden in prisons. There is no one to rescue them. There is no one to say, send them back. All because of God's action. That's a challenge. Who did this? Read this again. If you can see this on the screen, please read it with me. Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Just imagine the power of those words to a people who thought God had abandoned them. Not only is he saying, I didn't abandon you, he's saying, I allowed this to happen I was in control and I could have stopped it and I didn't. There's a challenge there for us in understanding the pain of Israel. We are confronted with the sin of Israel. In understanding Israel's confusion, we are confronted with our own confusion. We are brought face to face with a very hard reality and that is sometimes we ourselves must take responsibility for the things that happen in our lives. God's righteousness and his actions. In verse 21 of Isaiah 42, we read, it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. In verse 23, he says, which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Here's what I think, honestly. I don't think it was so much that God said to Israel, I'm going to punish you and rubbed his hands in glee. But what I do think he said is, I cannot be untrue to me. I must remain true to my word. I must remain true to my character. I must remain true to who I am, my holiness and my greatness and my compassion and my mercy and my judgment and my wrath and all that I am is contained within this holy, holy, holy God. 
But because you have not responded to me, I am left with no option but to send you into exile. It is God's love for righteousness and truth that drives the people of Israel into exile because they don't love him as much as they love themselves. There's a challenge for us in that. In all of this, Israel has forgotten her story. And it's not a story about a mattress on a Vauxhall Viva. It's not a story about a trailer with the wheel flying off and going into a window. It's a story of a people who were called by God, who were held in his hand and loved by him. And in forgetting their story, they've forgotten God. We'll come to this later, but let me just ask you something. It's one thing to forget a story about a family holiday. It's quite another to forget the story of God in your life. We as a church, with a capital C if you like, the church in the United Kingdom, part of the church in the world, must remember our story. We must remember who our God is. And although it's uncomfortable, we must remember that there are consequences of turning away from him. If the United Kingdom is in a mess spiritually and morally, then I have something to do with that. Does that make sense to you? The church, the body that I am part of, has something to do with the mess that we are in. And God asks us to remember his story. He asks us to remember our part. He asks us to be honest. And he asks me to be honest about that in the church that I lead in Berkshire. Not just the church universal in general. And he asks me, Malcolm Duncan, the stumbling father, the bumbling husband, to remember that about my own family that I have responsibilities and he asks me to honor them. There are consequences of failing to remember God are severe in our lives. They blind us, they plunder us, they cause us to be deaf, they throw us into prisons of despair, they make us feel as if no one cares and no one is there. And that's just a hard word for me to bring to you today but I will not alter this text. I do not have the right to do so. In Israel's struggle, God asks them to remember some of their own responsibility. Perhaps we too need to remember that. Some of our circumstances are the result of our actions, but not all. Can I breathe hope into your despair? Some of you are feeling very downcast now and want to shout at me or leave. Not everything that happens in our lives is our fault. Not everything that happens in our lives is of our own making. In John 9, do you remember the story with the man born blind, interestingly? Jesus' disciples say to him, in that kind of way that only ardent theologians can, who sinned? This man or his children? The man is blind. He doesn't need a debate about who sinned. And Jesus said, neither. Neither. It wasn't his fault. In other words, Jesus says to his disciples, the church, leave that vulnerable man alone. Stop blaming him. Stop trying to turn him into a case study. He said about a tower that fell. Do you remember? 
It just happened. Even Jesus didn't answer the question. The tower that fell and killed the people, the 18 people. It just happened. There are challenges for us, but I want to move from that despair to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 43. I'm not being blasphemous or rude, but I want to talk about the butt of God. Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was a preacher in Westminster Chapel, spent 17 weeks talking about the word but. Shall we do that? This but is so important though. Because after this despair, after this direct challenge, a challenge that could make them feel God didn't love them anymore, a challenge that make, might make them think God doesn't want us anymore, God isn't with us anymore, God has left us, God has abandoned us. After that direct challenge, Isaiah uses these words, but now, this is what I say. But now, this is what I say. And it is an amazing turn, turning on a sixpence. Isaiah reminds them that even though God brought them through punishment, even though God chastised them, even though God led them into Babylon, even though God allowed them to languish there, that's not the end of the story. And this morning you might be listening to me and thinking, you might be in the shallows and you might be thinking, I'm languishing and there's no hope. But now God has something else to say to you. God has another way of ministering to you and to you and to me. And I want to explore this but. What does this but now really mean? The words are amazing because God is saying to them, I have always loved you and I always will. The same love that chastised Israel and led them into exile is a love that will redeem them. Praise the Lord. The same love, according to the book of Hebrews, that chastises you is the love that will see you complete. It is the love that will reach into your heart and through that chastisement change you and change me. The end of the story is not the punishment. The end of the story is moving through that out into being recreated, remade, reformed, renewed, given grace and strength by God to carry on. Listen to this. In Isaiah 43, God reminds them of something. He reminds them that once before, they were trapped. They were stuck in Egypt. They were building bricks for a foreign authority. They were a, a nation that had been stripped of its power. But they weren't there forever. God called them out. And the same God that called them out of Egypt is about to call them out of Babylon. The same God that allowed them to go into Egypt is the God that took them by the hand and led them into the promised land. The same God that said to them in the promised land, you've abandoned me and you will go into exile, is about to reach into their lives and lead them out again. And so he reminds them of the exodus. This amazing, transforming, renewing, central story in the history of Israel. And he does it by saying this to them. Read carefully Isaiah 43. I created you. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. 
fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you. He created them, he loves them, he formed them, he redeemed them, he called them by name. These verses tumble out hope. It's almost as if God cannot say it fast enough. But what is amazing, and this is where exegesis of this passage is so important, is if you compare what he has said in Isaiah 42 to what he says in Isaiah 43, you can feel hope beginning to rise in Israel. He says to them in Isaiah 42, who was there to call you out? And in Isaiah 43, he says, I will call you out. He says to them at the end of Isaiah 42, who was, you to, who was there to pluck you from the fire? And at the beginning of Isaiah 43, he says, when you pass through the fire, he says to them, no one knew who you were in Babylon. No one knew who you were in exile in Isaiah 42. And in Isaiah 43, he says, I created you. I know your name. I know where you're from. I know what you're facing. I know what you feel. I know what you're struggling with. I know what you understand as a nation and as people. I know you. That's why you can trust me because my story hasn't ended yet. He calls them by name. He tells them that he will move Egypt and they begin to remember something. They begin to remember a bit of their own story. They begin to remember that this God who is speaking to them through Isaiah remembered them in Egypt. He heard their plight. He turned and answered them. The most powerful part of this bit of the chapter is in verse four. Because I love you. And in it, we see unpacked the power of covenant. God keeps his promises. And he keeps his promises to Israel. And he will keep his promises to us. He says to them, don't be afraid. I love you. I will bring you. I will gather you because I love you. I will say to the east and to the west and to the north and to the south, give them up. I will call out, bring my children from afar and from the ends of the earth because I love you. Everyone that I love will be drawn to me. According to the words of Jesus in the New Testament, not one of those that have been given to the Father will be lost to him. And today you might be feeling, but I am in a far country. I am so far away from God. But if he loves you, he loves you. And our relationship with him is built not on our love for him, but on his love for us. We used to sing a hymn in the church that I became a Christian in. In case you were worried, I am a Christian. <laughs> At least today. No, I'm only kidding. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice. And I have peace with God. I change. He changes not. The Christ can never die. His blood, not mine, the resting place. His love, not mine, the tie. 
Allow those words to sink into you. You might feel I don't love God very much today. God loves you as much today as he has ever loved you. He will never stop loving you. He will never stop loving you. He will never stop loving you. I pastored a church on the South Coast, not the one in Painton, because I didn't go. They did ask me, by the way, bizarrely. But in the church that I pastored on the South Coast, there was a, an elder who had a, a moral feeling, ended up having a relationship with another lady. And we stepped him down from leadership. And one night I was walking around, along the beach, I changed his name. I was walking along the beach with him, trying to help him understand that somehow God could make something out of this mess. I'll call him John. And he said to me, Malcolm, I just know that God has left me. And I said, with tears pouring down my face, and I still love him. I said, John, when you are in the most intimate moment of this relationship, God is standing right beside you. And he weeps. Whatever catches you today, however distant you feel from God, Isaiah 43 tells me that he is standing right beside you. Right beside you. And he'll never walk away. The theology that says God walks away from us disrupts and destroys the message of Jesus. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. There is nowhere you can go that I will not go. There is nowhere that you can be that I cannot be. Even in the midst of your worst sin, I'm standing with you. Which makes it worse somehow, doesn't it? Realizing that Jesus is there, he doesn't turn his back. He doesn't hide. He doesn't pretend not to see. Realizing he's there changes the way we feel about what we're facing, does it not? This God says, do not be afraid. I will bring you and I will gather you. The most important word here, and if I lose track of all consciousness and time in trying to explain this to you, I'm apologizing in advance, is the word with. Not but, but with. A sermon on conjunctions. How terrific is that? <laughs> you go back to your local churches and you'll say, we heard a sermon about the word with. God doesn't say to them, I'll go ahead of you. God doesn't say to them, I'll go behind you. God doesn't even say to them, I'll catch up. God says, when you go through the fire, I am with you. I'm right there. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. Not somewhere else, but right there in the pain. Imagine the power of these words to Israel. I am with you. And allow the with of God to breath, breathe upon you now. Whatever you face, he is not ahead of you, he is with you. Tell you the story of a man who lost his son and he was angry with God. And he said to him, Lord, how can you let me go through this? You're a father. You've lost your son. How can you let me go through this pain? How can you allow this to happen? And God's response to him was this. How many rooms have you stood in and had to suffer this pain? Because every time a father loses a son, God is there. Every time a mother loses a husband, God is there. 
Every time a child dies of hunger, God is in that pain. Every time your community faces a disaster, God is there. Where was God when the tsunami struck? He was in 300,000 cries of pain and fear and terror. Because God is with us. He is not ahead of us and he is not behind us. He is with us. What do you face today? God is with you. How lonely do you feel? God is with you. How afraid are you of the future? God is with you. And we have that hope because he was with Israel. Because he has promised to walk the road with us. To the brother I had a conversation with yesterday about being alone. You're never alone. You can never be alone. Because God is with you. But that's not where this story ends. Because God then says, because I am with you, I have a commission for you. And he says to Israel, lead the people out. And he uses the words blind and deaf again. And this time he says, you were once blind and deaf, I made you so. Now find those that are blind and deaf and lead them out. Find those that cannot see and lead them out. Find those that cannot hear and let them hear. Read the beginning of Isaiah's commission. And it is this. Go to a people who will not hear. Go to a people who will not listen. Go to a people who will not see and tell them who I am. How many of us want the commission to go to people who are never going to hear us? Perhaps not. That's a great mission, isn't it? Go and tell and they'll say, no, I don't want to listen. And we might say, well, our community isn't listening. Nothing's ever changed. And Isaiah 43 says, tell them the big story. Tell them, even though they can't hear, keep telling them because eventually they'll hear. Even though they won't look, keep telling them because that's what I want you to do. Compare that with Isaiah 42 and you see a God who is powerfully moving. They're called to be witnesses of God's grace in verses 8 through to 13. And the question for us is, how do we relate all of this to God in our own personal lives? We are called to be people who go and tell and show and say and do and demonstrate that this great story of God is still real and alive. God is the deliverer. In Isaiah chapter 43, when you get to your chalet, this is the first book I'm going to suggest you read. Read this again and compare the words to what God said to them previously. Remember that he is talking to them about the Exodus. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, verse 14, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses and they're thinking of Moses' song. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider fell into the sea. Who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished and snuffed out like a wick. And then he says the most amazing thing. He reminds them of the Exodus and he says the most amazing thing. Forget it. He says, remember how I set you free? Now forget it. How many of you have learned these passages? Forget the former things. 
this bit that's in Isaiah, this famous, famous passage. Here's the context. God says, remember the Exodus. Remember what I did when you left Egypt. Remember how I set you free? Now forget it. Because I'm doing a new thing. In other words, the way I delivered you from Egypt is not the way I will deliver you from the Babylonians. The way I set you free from that last exile is not the way I will set you free from this exile. What does that mean for Israel? It means that God will do a new thing. It means that God will set them free as he sees fit. The method of deliverance is not the most important thing. Deliverance is the important thing. And God says to them, you were delivered one way from Egypt, but I'm going to deliver you a completely different way from Babylon. They should remember the Exodus, but they should allow God to do a new thing. Hello! I sound like Jimmy Cricket. Or Graham Norton. As long as I don't sound like Frank Carson. That's a cracker. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And God says to you, I delivered you one way in years gone by, but that doesn't mean I'll deliver you the same way again. He says, I've set the church free in revival power in many ways, but that doesn't mean I'll do the same thing again. But trust me, I will do something. Forget the former things, behold, I do a new thing. It's not just about saying, oh, how wonderful. It's not a glib thing. It's about saying, all of my history is not as important as my future. All that is gone is not as important as what is to come. The power of God for us is so strong that God cannot be manipulated into loving them. He can't be manipulated into serving them. He's already made the commitment. Nobody can force him. But he says to them, my future for you is so certain that it reaches back into your present and changes and transforms you. God's future for you is so certain that he reaches back and almost takes us at times by the scruff of the neck and says, I will drag you into the future that I have planned. I will pull you into my purposes and plans. And you might say, but I can't walk. And he'll say, I'm going to pull you. Your future is so secure that it is changing your present. Please hear me say this. You are not the product of your past alone. The distinctive Christian thing about hope is we are a product of our future. We are a product of our future. We are a product of what we will become because it is so certain that God reaches into our present. If you'd like to know what I mean when I say this, come to the skyline and ask me because it's a pretty strange thing for many of you to hear. God lives in the eternal present. You look at your life like a video film and you look at it one clip at a time, yes? God takes the life of every individual in history and he pulls it out, this video clip, and he can see every frame at the same time. Now, pause and think about that for a minute because that means the prayers of the past can affect the present. But it also means the prayers of the present can affect the past. God sees everything about you. He's able to take the prayers of your children and change you with them. Because his future is so secure, he can reach back to your present. Isn't that mind-blowing? Some of you are saying, what? I need to go and have a coffee and think about that. 
What does this mean for us? Very quickly, I have two things I want to do. First of all, there are many ways in which we've ended up in a mess. And none of them are because God was powerless to help us. To the answer, why does God let some things happen? I don't know. And it is probably the most theologically profound thing that I will say over these four days. I do not know. And no one can explain all the actions of God to you. I'm sorry it's glib, but it is the truth. Secondly, his amazing commitment to us is stronger than our commitment to him. His commitment carries us. Thirdly, we need to remember not only that our stories are personal and true to us, but the story of the church and the story of the people of Israel, that God proves himself faithful to you despite what you are feeling, and Exodus is on the way. Fourthly, we must be open to a new thing, not to living in the past, not to worshiping it. To live in the past is bad stewardship. To worship it is idolatry. To learn from it is discipleship. The challenge for us is to allow God to move in our lives and transform us and renew us. And God's future is so secure for you that it reaches back to your present and it gives you hope and changes you. Remember that clip? Remember that clip? They'd be fighting. Have a look at this one. The fortress is taken. Listen, we might feel absolutely alone. We don't need to look to Gandalf. We look to the promise of Jesus that the light is with us. But even in that pain, even in that light, we can suffer pain. We can wonder where he is. We can struggle feeling we are not strong enough. His promises are true and sure. I've asked Andy, who's a friend and a wonderfully anointed singer, to finish our time this morning with a song that talks about the promise of God being with us even when we do not understand where he is or how things happen. God is with us. Don't rush away. Please listen to this. I'll see you in the skyline later or here tomorrow or in the book signing. If you need those notes, you know what to do. But listen and allow God to minister to you. God bless you.